Buenos días, mis hermanos y hermanas. Church. Okay, uh, last week we started a series, a brief series, a four-sermon series on 1 Thessalonians. And um, so I thought we would continue that today. Maybe. Okay, I'll need a little help, but I would rather not have to ask you every single time. Let me see if it starts working there. Okay, now you saw this map last week, and I know that, and I'm not going to give you the same full background that I did, but I want to again set it up, and I think we can do it relatively quickly. In A.D. 48, and the Apostle Paul, by the way, was born, they say, around A.D. 5, 6, 7, around the latter part of that first decade of the year of our Lord. So that would put Paul in AD 48, about 42, maybe 41, 42, 43 years old. He's already been on one missionary journey uh, with uh, Barnabas and Barnabas's nephew, some say cousin, John Mark, and they had returned. They left Syria, they, they left Antioch of Syria, and then they returned to Antioch of Syria. And so soon after that, after they worked this thing out with the dietary issues for the church at, at Antioch, Paul turns to Barnabas and says, let's go back to the same churches that we just established and let's encourage them. And Barnabas says, that's a great idea. Let me get a hold of John Mark, my cousin. And Paul says, no, I don't think so. You know, he quit on us once and I don't want to bring him back. And then God God intervenes because there was an argument. And arguments are okay among brothers. And so Barnabas said, no, we're taking my cousin. And Paul said, we're not taking your cousin. By the way, later on, Paul and John Mark really make up. And when Paul is in a Roman prison writing Timothy, 2 Timothy, the one thing he said is, he, he called him, he said, bring Mark. He is so useful to me. Anyway, they made up, but just before the second journey, it was decided that, that they would split up. So the Holy Spirit told Barnabas and John Mark, go to Crete and share the gospel of Christ. The Holy Spirit told Paul, take Silas with you and go back to the churches and go on a second journey. So Paul and Silas, around AD 48, leave Antioch of Syria, and they travel uh, through Asia Minor. They pick up Timothy and Lystra, young, young man, but Paul was so impressed with this young, godly man that he said, Timothy, come join us. And we have Timothy and Silas and Paul on the second journey. They end up on the coast of the Aegean Sea, which just east of the sea, there is Turkey. Then it was called Asia Minor. And so they're over in Asia Minor. They receive what's called a Macedonian call. Somebody from Macedonia uh, by, the, by the Spirit of God and Paul, you know, dreamt it. And the person from Macedonia was saying, come help us, come help us. So Paul uh, changed his, his direction, his vector, and then he went to Macedonia. They end up in Philippi, establish a church. Um, they're thrown in prison. And God releases them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And, and then from there they go to Thessalonica. They were only three weeks. But the Bible tells us, Acts chapter 17, um, tells, uh, Acts 18, tells us that uh, 
there were uh, Jews who were converted to Christ in Thessalonica. There were uh, devout Greeks. These would be God-fearers. And there were noble women and pagans. So what an interesting uh, combination of newly converted Christians. Paul's only there three weeks because the leading Jews hired a mob, and the mob persecuted the church, Jason and the church, and persecuted Paul and Silas and Timothy to the point where Paul and Silas and Timothy had to leave quickly. They went to Berea, about 40 miles away. In Berea, the Bible tells us, Acts 17, 11, that the Jews were more noble there in Berea than they were in Thessalonica, and they received the Word of God gladly, examining the Scriptures to see if these things were so. And so you have the Church of God established in Berea. Soon after that, the same mob from Thessalonica, Betty, welcome, sister. That was a worthy rabbit trail, yes? All right. Where was I? Anyway, very quickly, Paul uh, had to leave Berea because he was being persecuted. I mean, his life was being threatened. So he goes to the Aegean Sea, and there he boards a boat, and the boat takes him, ship takes him to Athens, and while he's in Athens, he summons for Silas and Timothy. But by the time Silas and Timothy got there, Paul was already in Corinth. Now about a year has passed. That's important. About a year has passed, and the great apostle had established churches in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and Berea, and Athens, and now Corinth. But where is his concern? Not with the Philippians, Bereans, not with the Athenians. His real concern was with the Thessalonians because he had been there only three weeks. And so the church of Christ in Thessalonica, that consisted of completed, converted Jews, God-fearers, uh, noble women, and pagans, Paul was thinking, I left persecution. And I know that the saints have already tortured, persecuted the church. And Paul was very concerned. Whenever Timothy and Silas came, uh, Paul wrote a letter. He wrote it around A.D. 51. So that means now the church had been established about a year and a half. And Paul writes this epistle. Why does he write it? Because he's so concerned about these baby Christians. And he gets the letter. Oh, pardon me. Um, I've kind of gotten ahead of myself. He sends Timothy to the report. Timothy makes two trips, goes back to Corinth, gives Paul the report. The report is, the report is um, Paul, not only are the Thessalonians doing okay, they are thriving. They're thriving. There are some issues because they don't know much, and they're concerned about those who have been martyred. They're concerned about their family members who have died, and, uh, and Jesus hasn't come yet. And they're thinking, well, what if he comes now? We're alive, but, but my dad is dead. And Paul writes back that beautiful text that I've used recently, you know, with the various funerals that we've had. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and following. We'll not go through that. It's that text where the great apostle says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the archangels call, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be 
caught up together with them in the clouds in the air, there to be with the Lord forever. So therefore, verse 18, comfort each other with these words. So Paul sends this letter back to the Thessalonians, and they receive it, and they read it. Now, as a, as a reminder that the entire book, which is only about 1,800 words, uh, 89 verses, five chapters, the entire book um, has really two main movements. The first Paul is celebrating their faith, and the second part is he's telling them, I mean, that's a lesson for all of us, right? Antioch, I have no doubt that if God, uh, through Paul, if Paul were here now, he would celebrate our faith. He would celebrate our Betty's faith. He would celebrate this whole moment, and then he would add, don't stop. Keep on going. Keep on growing. You're never too old to where you've learned it all. Trust me. <laughs> Keep on growing in Christ. And these are, are surrounded with three beautiful prayers, the prayer of thanksgiving, the prayer of endurance, and the prayer of hope. Now, as I was reading through the first earlier in the last, I was thinking, you know, this will just about preach itself. There are verses like that. In fact, there's so much material here that I think, you know, as I read, we just use this for the next three Sundays. Because basically, when you talk about the work of faith and the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope, that's what the other two prayers talk about too. So let's look at this text very carefully. Paul writes, we give thanks to God always for you all, constantly remembering, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if those three virtues seem familiar, faith, love, and hope, they are. We read about them not only in the Old Testament, we read about them not only in the writers other than Paul of the New Testament, but we really read about them in Paul's epistles. As an example, let's read, I'm going to read a portion of Romans 5, Galatians 5, Colossians 1, and 1 Corinthians 13. Just take a moment. Notice what Paul tells the Roman church. Therefore, this is, this is Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Um, not only that, <clears throat> but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice what he says in Galatians. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, faith is working through love. And in Colossians 1, we all thank God, the Father of our Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And then, of course, the classic 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul concludes with, now faith, hope, and love abide 
these three, but the greatest. So when you read about faith and hope and love, it's more than just a casual passing comment by Paul, by God. Because once we understand what it means to implement work of faith, labor of love, and patience, steadfastness of hope, our Christian life will improve. There's no doubt about that. By the way, if I were to, um, I can recall moving into our house. Uh, we've been there now for, uh, this is our going on, our, uh, this, we're just closing 15 years in that house. Hard to believe, but we've been in that house uh, for, for about a year. We were in an apartment when we first moved here. But if I were, in fact, I can recall doing this. If I were to tell somebody, they ask, well, tell me, what, how do I get to your house? Before GPS, I guess there were GPSs then, but not many people had them. I certainly didn't. Um, anyway, before GPS, how do we get to your house? I would say it's really easy if you're coming to Antioch. I-24 East, take exit 64. When you take the exit, turn left at the Mapco. Follow the Mapco Road all the way down until you come to the elementary school, then turn right. When you, when you turn right by the elementary school, take the very first left, follow it down until you come to the water tower, and then turn left. That's our street, and we're on the left. It worked sometimes. I also had people call me and say, Whit, we can't find your house. And I said, did you see the landmarks? Well, we saw the Mapco. We didn't see the school or the water tower. And I said, if you didn't see the school or the water tower, you're on the wrong road. You're lost. You cannot get to our house in any direction at the very least, without seeing the water tower. These are landmarks. We have them all the time. I've also had people call me and say, Brother, I'm lost. My life's out of balance. I pray, but I feel like nothing's happening. I sit in the pew, but like it's, I don't see, feel God's presence. And I say, what about the landmarks? And then we talk about faith and hope and love. Because there's no way to miss God if you follow the landmarks of faith and hope and love. Paul uses it all the time, but it's all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Faith and hope and love. Now, notice what Paul does here. Those are three nouns. Faith, hope, love. There are three nouns in the Greek text. There are three nouns in the English text. They are nouns, right? Hope, faith, and love. But Paul takes it a step further in this beautiful text. This is a prayer. And notice he's praying to someone that he, that he had known for three weeks. And yet they, they persevered. How? Because the Spirit of God's within them, and the Spirit of God was the one who encouraged them and protected them, provided, forgave them, built up the body of Christ. It's never the preacher. It's 
even the great apostles, it's always Jesus Christ. Always. This congregation will never, ever grow in spirit without Christ. You can have the greatest pulpiteer in the world, the finest elders. We could have 10,000 people here, but without Christ, it is a dead assembly. With Christ, it is vibrant. And so the moment that it collectively maybe ceases to be as vibrant, or we individually cease to be as vibrant, these are the landmarks. Notice work of faith. By the way, this is all we're going to talk about, work of faith for the next few minutes. The, by the way, all, all three of those words, work and labor and steadfastness, are also nouns. It's a very uh, unusually constructed grammatical sentence. Work, faith, um, labor, love, patience. What's the hope? It's... it's you know, you think you'd have some sort of adjective, something to describe it. That's not what Paul is doing. He's reminding the Thessalonian church, listen, you have changed. You're not the same people before you came to Christ. You're, there was no work of faith or labor of love or steadfastness of hope. Those were absent in your life. The word work in the Greek text is ergon, ergon. And it, by the way, it's the same word used by James, but it's used in the plural. James 2.18, show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. He is not talking about, in this text, he's not talking about toil. He's not, James was, he even, even, even used the example, if you see somebody hungry, feed them. If you see them naked, clothe them. Otherwise, what good are you? Don't say go in peace and be filled. It, it serves no purpose. Show me your faith apart from and by my works, I'll demonstrate my faith. But that is same word in the text, but it's used differently. In the context, it's different. And the, and the real giveaway is both the definite article and the fact that it's singular. Paul's not talking about their works of faith, those things that demonstrate their, their faith. He's saying faith itself is work, not toil. It is a lifestyle. It's a very important distinction. There is a huge difference between church work and the work of the church. One might involve staff meetings or elders meetings or making getting the bulletin done. The other involves the whole body of Christ practicing, implementing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth, Galatians 5.22. It's the work of the body of Christ as you go into the community. And what do you do? You make disciples. The operative word in the Great Commission is not go. The command imperative is to make, but you make as you go. And what do you do as you go? Work of faith. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, so forth. It is, a, so what Paul is doing is, he's telling this young baby church, I remember you before God because your lifestyle has entirely changed from what it was just a few months ago. Before that, some of you were pagans and just lived and dwelt in sin. Others were God-fearers and others were, were and 
Others were just women who happened to be there um, and, and who were wealthy. Their entire life was different. The moment we become Christian, all of a sudden, it's our lifestyle. Faith, in, in this context, really, period, dot. Faith is not an intellectual assent that says, I believe. That's why James could say, the devils believe and they tremble. That's not faith. That's God exists. Faith is who you are. Faith is not what you do. Faith is who you are. It is the filter through which all of life funnels. Before you were a Christian, certainly the Thessalonians, but all of us, before we came to Christ, especially if we came to Christ as an adult, before we came to Christ, we filtered the world through our own prism. You know, our worldview was probably what's for me. But the moment we come to Christ, everything is filtered through Jesus. And that's why the words we speak are filtered through Christ. The things that we do filter through Christ. Uh, whenever we sin, our heart breaks. First John, why? Because our conscience is pricked. Why? Because God's living inside and he's pricking the conscience. It's the faith in Christ is our worldview. So I applaud you for your work of faith. You know, there was a book years ago by Elton Trueblood, a Quaker scholar, passed away now, but a prolific and a great philosopher and really spiritualist. Uh, Trueblood wrote a book titled Your Other Vocation. And his thesis was that he thinks the world, Christianity, uh, has misdefined vocation and avocation. Now, we know what the words mean in English. If I were to ask, what is your vocation? You know, you know what are, he, would, he would say, and understandably so, well, I'm a controller, I'm an accountant, I work with figures and money, and okay, what? Well, I like disc golf, and I like to play ping pong, and I enjoy being with the children, and I... Webster defines vocation as a profession and a not vocation as your passion. But true blood, really, Paul would say that's not right. Our vocation from the Latin vocatory calling is our faith. What is our vocation? We are followers of Christ. If I'm asked, and in a, in a quickness to, to reply, somebody were to ask me, what do you do? What is your vocation? My answer ought to be, I'm a disciple of Christ. It governs all my life. Now, it just so happens that I was a chaplain or a school teacher or a preacher. Uh, even the, even the, by the way, do you think when I leave the pulpit that all of a sudden my faith is gone? My work of faith? Of course not, because God is talking about who I am as a person. My totality because I leave the pulpit and, and sit in the pew, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden my work of faith has changed. Maybe the works of my faith have altered some a little bit, but not my faith itself. It is a lifestyle. And so what True Blood was saying is, he was saying your real passion is Christ. It's not being a great financial expert, or it's not, I don't know the professions here, sorry. It's not, it's not being an engineer. It's, that, that's, what, that's how you put bread on the table. By the way, Acts 18, 1 through 3, 
uh, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome, <clears throat> and that included Aquila and Priscilla, even though they were Jewish Christians. I mean, the emperor didn't know the difference. So all the Jews had to leave Rome, and so now we have, where did they go? Well, most went to Corinth, very close. And so you have Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. Do you know why Paul was so excited to see Aquila? Because they were both tent makers. How do you think Paul managed to travel the world and not take any money from the churches? And he didn't beg. He made tents. Paul would say, that's my avocation, not my passion. My passion is my faith in Christ. I'm a disciple of Christ. If you were to ask Paul, what is your what, and they used that, you know, they, they spoke Latin back then. What is your calling? What is your vocation? He would say, I'm a disciple of Christ. He might add, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wouldn't say, I'm a tent maker. And so we need to understand that our work of faith is not what we do during the week to put bread on the table. Thank God for that. But that, in fact, he'll even tell the Thessalonians, if you're not going to work, don't eat. So he wants us to work, but he reminds them that your true lifestyle is faith. Have you ever heard of Meyer Kubelski? Meyer, I think that's how you pronounce it, Meyer. Perhaps not. What about his son, Benjamin Kubelski? Yeah, me too. In 1902, this Jewish-Polish immigrant, came to America, and he and his family moved to Chicago. And there, in 1902, he didn't have much money, but he spent $50, and he bought his eight-year-old son a violin, because he really wanted his son to play the violin. And by the way, I looked it up. $50 in 1902 is 1600 today. Not a fortune, but a lot of money to spend if you don't have any money on your eight-year-old boy's birthday. So he gave his, birthday, gave his uh, son, Benjamin got pretty good at it. In fact, he said later on, he said, I hated playing it. I didn't, I, he, said, he said, really, I love playing. I didn't like the practice. But dad, you know, father made me practice. Well, 10 years later, when he was 18, Benjamin Kubelski, and I've misspelled it here, it's actually B-E-L, not B-L-E. Benjamin Kubelski um, was playing vaudeville, and he was playing with his partner, a lady who did duets. Well, one evening on vaudeville, they were between numbers, and he thought he would just share a story that occurred during the day. So he takes the violin in his hand, and he tells the audience this funny story. And the audience just broke out in laughter. And Benjamin Kubler, the laughter was intoxicating. I loved it. I didn't want to practice violin, but I loved the laughter. And he shared that story years later with the violin in his hand on stage on the Jack Benny show, and he said, laughter ended my days as a violinist. And then he explained, I always wanted to make people laugh. That was my calling. 
That was what I loved to do. There is a difference between putting bread on the table because we need to and your passion. Disciples of Christ, that's our work, singular, is faith, is faith. Uh, Vince Lombardi, examples here of True Blood, Kubelski, and Lombardi. But Vince Lombardi, famous coach of the Green Bay Packers, apparently every season, other than, gentlemen, this is the football, every season he would gather his players together and he would say, I have to remind you that life consists of more than work. And he defined work as a job. Life consists of more than a job. Remember God. Remember your And remember the Green Bay Packers. And in that order. The Apostle Paul, full circle, writes, these are, you don't have to know a whole lot of the original text to really have this come to, just come to life. The word parakaleo means, it's often translated appeal, but it means beg. You know, on bended knees, I beg you. Paul writes, I beg you, Ephesians, I beg you. Lead a life worthy of calling to old. And what calling? It's our faith. Not belief or, okay, I believe in God, and then you live otherwise. Your faith. Faith is a lifestyle. I'll tell you what, if you really do find yourself lost, find yourself meandering about aimlessly out of balance, then I suspect you need to look for the landmarks. And it begins with your work of faith. It is your lifestyle. It is 24-7. It's what you wake up with. It's what you dream about. It's what you, you, know, you go to sleep with. It's, it's every moment of your day. Work of faith. I'd love to invite, I will invite our shepherds to walk forward now to receive the church family in moments of prayer and whatever other needs we have. If you really just want to pray, then come pray with the shepherds or find someone there in the congregation that you love and respect and that you're, you know, brothers and sisters with. If you'd love to, uh, if you'd like to simply place membership with our congregation. We don't say that, I don't say that too often, but I hope it's we still have those who are visiting here, and they come Sunday after Sunday, but they never really want to get involved. I beg you, let the Spirit of God nudge you. Tell the elders you want to be part of the family. I mean, you're part of the family here anyway, but, you know, let's go ahead and make it official. Um, and you can as you come down. If you want to uh, die to your sins and you've never been buried in, with Christ in baptism, well, we'll just cancel class and keep going. That's okay, right? So anyway, no matter what your needs are, church, this is an opportune time to find your way again and come to Christ as we stand.